Fortress Canine Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of the Protection Dog Podcast, where we are offering an alternative to conventional training methods and philosophy. And today we are going to talk a little bit about breeding. But before we get there, let's handle our housekeeping. Uh, today's sponsor is Fortress Canine. Fortress Canine is bringing you peace of mind through protection dogs. We offer personal, family, and executive protection dogs. These dogs are specifically trained to be safe around your children and as you move around in public, but to be intense in their protection work should you need them in the event that you are attacked in any way. You can contact Fortress Canine on our website at FortressCanine.com. That is F-O-R-T-R-E-S-S, the letter K, the number nine, dot com. You can email us at Joel at FortressCanine.com, and we are also available uh, on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube by searching FortressCanine.com. Also, don't forget to check out our new puppy uh, Instagram and Facebook pages. And uh, you can find them on Instagram at FortressK9.Puppies. And you can also search Fortress K9 Puppies on Facebook to find our page there. Uh, you can see all of our puppies and you can contact us to find out how to get on our waiting list for our upcoming litters. All right, so with that handled, let's jump into today's topic and talk a little bit about breeding. So for people who are not familiar with breeding, um, there's basically uh, the prevailing philosophy, especially predominated by the AKC, the American Kennel Club, the CKC, the Canadian Kennel Club, and a lot of the other uh, breeding registrations. So whenever people say, you know, are they registered or are they papered, they're referring to these uh, kennel clubs that maintain registration records on breeding lines. And the prevailing philosophy in these kennel clubs is that in order to get German Shepherds, you must breed German Shepherds to German Shepherds. Or in order to get Malinois, you must breed Malinois to Malinois. Or for Dutch Shepherds, you got to breed Dutch Shepherds to Dutch Shepherds. And in terms of you know, just simplifying down breeding practices. I can appreciate where that came from, but the problem is the German Shepherd breed was created from other breeds. And the Malinois were created from other breeds and the Dutch Shepherds were created from other breeds. And all of the breeds at some point were created from other breeds. And so the old school philosophy of breeding dogs was that you would periodically reintroduce the breeds that were used to create the primary breed in the first place. And over time, the breeds that were used specifically for the German Shepherds and the Malinois have largely kind of faded into these other lines, right? The German Shepherd line, Dutch Shepherd line. Uh, there's other herding lines, uh, the German Shepherd line though as well. So. The, the breeds that were originally used to create these lines have kind of faded into the lines themselves. So what has now kind of started, well, let me just back up just a little bit. So you, you can either reintroduce these lines and maintain genetic diversity, 
or you can breed only the breed to itself and ultimately what you come down to is you kind of create this situation where you have forced align breeding even when they're not actually related in terms of you know your dogs on ground they end up being genetically related because the genetics become so narrow so specific to those breeds so align breeding is when you breed two related dogs together right so it could be a brother and sister it could be a father daughter mother son uh, something like that those are considered line breedings and they're primarily done to bring out a specific trait um, that you get in maybe a litter or uh, when you breed two dogs together you get a really strong trait there so you take the one dog that had that trait and one of the, the pups from that litter and breed those back together in a line breeding to, to draw that trait out more specifically and it's not that you can't ever do that a lot of people don't like it at all but you can do that from time to time if you're trying to bring out really specific traits but when you do it that where it breaks down is when you do a line breeding you really need to then go and re-diversify those genetics for several generations to make sure you don't end up creating genetic problems genetic health problems right so the reason so many german shepherds specifically have such a high amount of genetic health problems now everything from hip dysplasia to glaucomas in their eyes to enlarged hearts and all sorts of other issues, lung issues and all sorts of things. One of the primary reasons that that has occurred is because of these breeding practices that say you can only breed German Shepherds and German Shepherds uh, in order to get German Shepherds, right? And, um, and so um, one of my clients that trains with me, she's actually one of my trainers, purchased two German Shepherds from two different breeders uh, from South America, brought them up. They were uh, sold in order to be a breeding pair. And when she had them genetically tested, they basically tested as if they were brother and sister, right? So these came from two different breeders. And the problem is because of the way the German Shepherds have been bred within the kenneling clubs, you, you end up with these situations where a lot of what's sold as breeding pairs end up genetically being so close that they're essentially brother and sister, even if they're not actually brother and sister, and so it perpetuates any of the genetic problems that are there and often creates new genetic problems, right? Whereas if you adopt the philosophy of genetic diversity is good as long as it's within, say, the herding breeds, right? So I'm not necessarily a fan unless you have a really specific reason. You wouldn't necessarily cross um, a Rottweiler and a German Shepherd, right? Um, that would usually be something accidental. Uh, but you, if you're trying to maintain the herding breed type, then within the herding breeds, if you have strong lines of Malinois and strong lines of German Shepherds, you can cross those lines over, right? And interestingly enough, the big breeding secret within a lot of the breeders within the working line world, and that's what we do is we breed working line dogs, is that they have been crossing the breeds now for about 10 to 20 years and some have gone back even farther than that okay so what's happened historically though is the people that were doing that because of the kennel club influences and things like that they were largely hiding it um, but they would have really strong lines while other people would have much weaker lines and people didn't understand why well that's why right so the genetic diversity within the herding breed or within the mauler breed the rottweilers the pit bulls all that kind of stuff Creating genetic diversity within these breeding lines keeps the lines really strong, 
okay? So that's what we do, that's what we've done since we started our breeding program, but we inherited it from uh, another location. We've been maintaining what I was taught when I was brought into this, and then what I have discovered as I've studied it and read up on it, and as I've started genetically testing the dogs that came from different locations and finding out, yep, they're doing the same things we're doing because they're, they have the three or two of the three uh, breeds, the Dutch Shepherd, Malinois, and German Shepherd are crossed into these lines, okay? But when we do that, we end up with lines that have a lot of strength to them. And when I try to add dogs that are not from our lines, it becomes really, really difficult because of what we've just come to expect in our lines. So we recently tried to add a dog into our lines. Uh, we were kind of excited about it. We, we brought her in and this dog was just mentally broken. So physically she was okay. Uh, her ears had some issues standing. We ended up selling her back to the, the group of people we bought her from and they kind of complained about her ears and I'm like, if you have to do something with a Malinois ears to make them stand, then that's a genetic flaw in that line to begin with but besides that you should not have to you should not have dogs that can't think right your dog should be able to think so when we look for traits in the lines or traits in dogs that we bring into our lines um, which we do very rarely and we test these dogs for about a year before we put them into the breeding programs and we it's wash out about five or six out of every seven uh, that we have tried this with but is we're looking for dogs that can think, that can problem solve, and that also can understand when there's nuanced changes to a situation. Uh, so for instance, uh, you know, something as simple as I'm loading a dog in my truck in crates and I open the door, I don't want the dog just leaping into the crate before I even have a chance to open the crate door, right? But what if I have two dogs and I'm loading one into this crate and then I'm walking around and loading the other one into the other side, my lines can see, hey, there's two of us here. He's opening the crate, only one of us goes in each crate and they wait for me to tell them which one it is that's supposed to go in. Even from the time they're pups, they do that. And so when we get dogs that are, I call it hyper pattern driven. So rather than thinking through a situation and processing a situation and seeing, oh, I understand what I'm supposed to do in this situation. These hyper pattern driven dogs um, which are being bred a lot for things like the sport world and stuff like that is they want dogs that will follow the pattern and will not deviate from it, right? So when you're trying to score or something like that in a sport, that can be a, a valuable trait to have in the dogs. But if you're trying to have dogs that are operating in the real world, there's different traits we look for when we're working that, right? And one of those traits is Real-world conflict is never choreographed. Uh, a lot of the events in sports, even when they make variations in it, it's still choreographed variations, right? Whereas in the real world, real-world fights are messy, they're dynamic, which means they're ever-changing, they're ever-moving, you never know what's gonna happen next, and you and the dog have to function together as a team and be problem-solving at a very rapid pace in order to overcome a threat and so we need dogs that have the ability to think. But in addition to the ability to think, because I've had dogs that can think are great problem solvers, but then can't handle stress, right? So we need dogs that can think, but also dogs that can handle stress. And 
that's a very hard combination to find sometimes, right? So I need a dog that is thoughtful and can problem solve, but then can also handle it when we apply a high amount of stress and they can very quickly ele elevate their stress ceiling, their stress threshold, which if you listen to some of our other podcasts, we talk about stress inoculation training and all of that. So if you haven't listened to those, go back and listen to those to see what I'm talking about when I refer to stress thresholds and stress ceilings and using stress inoculation to elevate those so that the dog has the ability to function and think and reason under high levels of stress, right? So humans and dogs both have a reaction under stress where we tend to shut down our brains, right? As we, as we approach and get really close to our uh, maximum stress threshold, our brains tend to shut down and we just go to animalistic responses, whatever our subconscious mind has been programmed to do, right? And if you haven't done a lot of training of your subconscious mind to function well in high threat situations, then you typically shut down and do nothing. Whereas if you train yourself to function under stress, to think under stress, and you do specific training and drills in order to train that, then when the high stress happens, you're able to operate in that and to see, hey, I'm trying to do this thing that I normally train to do, but it's not working. I need to alter my approach to this situation. And you're able to recognize that in the event, in the stress, and, and adjust accordingly. And in order to be able to do that, the dogs have to have a certain capability of functioning under stress where they don't just shut down and go into like piss themselves mode, right? So we're looking for dogs that can think, we're looking for dogs that can handle high levels of stress, and then we're looking for dogs that have a level of intensity and a desire to work. Now we're getting ready, my next podcast we're gonna talk about uh, drives, I've mentioned this a couple of times and that I don't particularly like the drives philosophy. I finally discovered specifically what it is I don't like about it and we're gonna talk more about that in depth in our next uh, episode, episode 21. But basically, I'm not, I'm not talking about what people would per se refer to as a drivey dog, because that's actually what I was sent from this last place. They said, well, I was trying to give you our most drivey dog, right? And I'm like, well, what they mean by drivey dog is hyper-pattern driven, apparently, because that's what I got was a hyper-pattern driven dog. Um, it would just crash into everything and it wouldn't think about anything. And I was just basically unable to function even in, in low levels of stress, right? I want a dog that can think, can handle stress, and then it, with those two traits, also has a high desire to work. And that doesn't mean a dog that can't sit still because that's a big part of what our dogs have to do as well, right? They're family protection dogs. They spend most of their days in a house, in a home, not necessarily doing massive amounts of work and they have to be able to function in that environment but then ramp it up and go for as long and as hard as they have to to accomplish whatever the given task is in any given day. And so they have to have an intensity to them when it comes to protection and a desire to work, meaning they will push through discomfort, they will push through um, when they get tired, they will continue to drive into the work until they get the work done, the mission accomplished, whatever it is that that person needs. So if the dog tracks and a child gets lost, then that dog has to go out and they have to work that track until that child is found, regardless of what the outside temperatures are, regardless of how long that takes, 
they have to be willing and able to do that. And along with that comes a physical capability of the dog. So they have to be structurally and physically sound so that they can handle jumping on things, jumping off things, physically fighting a human being, tracking for extended periods of time. So all of these are the things that we look for in our lines, which is one of the reasons so many dogs that we bring in from other lines wash out of our lines. But it's one of the things that I've been very thankful for of our lines and when we breed our lines, I have had almost zero dogs wash out of these programs. And usually when I do, it's the few that get injured in some of our high risk training. And yes, if you're gonna do high intensity training, it's risky. It's risky for the dog, it's risky for the person, it's risky sometimes for the handler if the handler is in the fray fighting with uh, the person. So when you do high risk training, people get injured. So a lot of Navy SEALs wash out of Navy SEAL training because they get injured in training because their training is so intense. So we mitigate the risk as much as we can, but you basically cannot remove all of the risk. And so sometimes a dog gets injured and, um, and we find them a good home and we basically sell them for a, a reduced amount. They don't wash out from the sake of, they can't do the work, but they wash out from the sake that they had an accident, they got injured. So that happens every once in a while, but all of the lines that we've bred up to this point, and we've been doing this for about 10, 12 years, have had super, super solid genetics. They've all been very thoughtful dogs, all able to handle stress. That's one of the things that my, uh, my puppy trainers um, who came from other areas of the working dog world have been just consistently, they're like, I cannot believe that these puppies can handle so much stress. Because um, they're so used to dogs that had to be babied, and I'm like, stop babying these puppies. They treat them like they're, they're gonna be adult dogs, treat them like they're gonna be warriors. They have to start this training from the time they're six and eight weeks old. And um, so when you have a solid breeding program, this should be the norm. There shouldn't be these this vast amount of diversity within a litter. You want genetic diversity from a health perspective, but you want to have dogs that consistently produce pups that can think, that can handle stress, that have a high intensity and desire to work and are structurally and physically sound and capable of doing what needs to be done and um, and not breaking down in those situations. So we haven't, uh, there's a bunch of things that you can say about breeding. There's a lot of things you can get into. I do highly recommend um, doing genetic testing with dogs. There's so much available out there now uh, and it's constantly getting better all the time. It is not a be all end all. I've, the dogs that we brought in recently have the parents have shown you know great genetic tests and then the dogs are still crap because genetic testing doesn't tell you if the dog can think and it doesn't tell you if it can handle stress. You can only find those things out by actually testing the dogs on the field in actual scenarios and situations. But it will tell you if there's underlying health conditions. It will tell you if there's been inbreeding in those lines. It will tell you things like that, that you can um, at least get some of these things taken care of and, uh, and get some of those red flags thrown out before uh, you step in and it will help you out a little bit. So hopefully that's been helpful to you. Uh, this episode has been just a little bit shorter uh, than some of our other episodes, but I wanted to make sure that we broach this topic because it's come up briefly in some of our other episodes and as I think through some of the things that we're talking about in the future, it's probably gonna be coming up a little bit more as we get into some of these other uh, topics and things of that nature. So don't fall into the category 
of thinking that your ideal situation is a quote-unquote purebred dog. Usually in our world today, if somebody gives you AKC papers or says that so-and-so is quote-unquote purebred, unless they have a highly, highly selective breeding program, which very few places do, there's a couple places in Europe that still do it, things like that, but most breeding programs nowadays are not nearly selective enough, and you get these quote-unquote purebreds, and you end up with either genetic problems, uh, the inability to think, or an inability to handle and deal with stress. And if you're looking for an actual personal protection dog, those things all become liabilities as you work forward. And, uh, and again, if you've taken anything that I've said in this episode to be smashing the sport world or anything else like that, um, I don't care if you do sports. I think it's fine if people want to do sports with their dogs. I think it's fine when we use dogs for law enforcement. I think it's fine when we use dogs for military application. I think there are lots of different applications for what we do with these dogs. And each application has its own nuanced aspects of training and what we're looking for in dogs. And when you're talking about personal protection, while a dog that does sports may also do personal protection, a dog that is really good at personal protection may not score very well in a sport. So typically when you're doing sports, they're breeding for dogs that will do well in the sport. And when you're breeding for personal protection, you are breeding for dogs that will specifically be able to do well in that specific environment. And while you know there is a sense in which you say, well, a well-bred dog should be able to do all of them, maybe, maybe, and maybe some of them can, but that's not always the case. A very well-bred uh, dog for personal protection may do crappy in sports, but if your intent is not to do sports with that dog ever, then why do we care if it can do well in sports or not? If its purpose is to do personal protection, then that is what we should be breeding for. And, uh, and again, if, it, if somebody's breeding for sport dogs, then some of the stuff that we've talked about today may not be as applicable to them. They may not want a dog that's overly problem solving because it may hesitate uh, to take a certain bite if it sees a weapon, which will get them worse scores on a sport field. But for us in personal protection, we specifically want our dogs to recognize that's a weapon and then to counter the weapon in such a way that it disarms the person or it at the very least keeps itself from being injured in such a way that it can no longer defend us, right? So a dog that is being a diversion is still way more valuable from a personal protection standpoint than a dog that just goes in for a supposedly full mouth bite, you know, latches onto this person and then gets stabbed to death. Right now, in an ideal situation, the dog continues to engage in the actual fight and avoids the weapon, but the, none of these things are ever all or nothing, right? Anybody who comes in and says, well, it's all this or it's all that, it's all about the bite or it's all about whatever, those people are people who have probably never been in a fight, never been in an actual situation where they had to defend themselves. They've either just talked to people who talked to people who talked to people about it, or they read books about it, or they read statistics about it, and then they think they know something about it. And I'm not saying that those people can't engage in training dogs, but I am saying that it gives a very narrow view of each of the things that we are talking about. And typically, narrow views have a lot of blind spots in them. 
and if you have a lot of blind spots, then you're going to miss a lot of critical training. Just like when you're training your first puppy, you make a lot of mistakes because you don't realize that a lot of the stuff you're doing with the dog at eight and 12 weeks old is going to impact that dog at six and eight months old, right? So do what you wanna do, take this information, leave this information, but this is how the old line breeders used to do it in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, a lot of people say, oh, we've moved beyond that. But I look and I say, yeah, a lot of the lines have moved beyond that. And that's why we no longer have dogs that can think. We have dogs that are physically broken. We have dogs that have just enormous amounts of genetic uh, health condition problems. Do we really think our dogs are better off today than they were in the early 1900s? Go back and look at the dogs and look at the pictures and look at the descriptions of those dogs. Look at what they did with the dogs in World War I. Look at what they did with the dogs in World War II and ask yourself, could most of the dogs we have today do those things? And the answer is probably not, right? So we have moved beyond a lot of those practices and I believe personally it's been to the detriment of the dog. The dogs have suffered because we thought we knew better than our predecessors. We thought we knew better than people who had bred and trained dogs for millennia to work. And we have become weak and our dogs have become weak. So um, hopefully this has been helpful for you. Hopefully it's been informational. Don't forget that you can contact me via email at joel at fortresscanine.com. You can also text me at 813-836-9244. Uh, don't forget, I've said it a lot, but I do not answer phone calls I don't recognize. So if you want to talk, send me a text first. Uh, also check out our websites, FortressK9.com is where you can find information about the dogs that we sell as trained protection dogs. And uh, also FortressK9.com slash puppies is our specifically our puppy page. And then over on K9AcademyOnline.com is our local and online training website where you can get information on how to train dogs the same way we do. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching Fortress Canine, Canine Academy Online, or Fortress Canine Puppies. And we currently have about a six-month waiting list uh, for our puppies. So if you are interested in getting one of our working line puppies, make sure you contact us soon. Make sure you get yourself on our waiting list so that you don't miss out on the next breeding and have to wait even longer than you're already gonna have to wait. Uh, hopefully this has been helpful. Look forward to talking to you guys next week. And until then, remember, train hard and stay safe. Fortress Canine Podcast.